Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Well, 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 yes it is time for the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Uh, we are continuing our uh, super popular parable series. It was so great. People begged us, you know, cards, letters, you know, phone calls, night and day, bricks to the window. Please, please bring it back. We're like, all right, we'll bring it back. So, uh, yeah, we're excited to continue doing our parable series. And my name is Keith Giles. I am uh, one of your many co-hosts here on the Heritage Capier podcast. I am the author of the uh, just completed best-selling seven-part series of Jesus Un books available on Amazon. On print and Kindle and audio, blah blah blah. Oh my check God, them out. Who the hell cares? You look, man. This is the <laughs> shtick. I have to introduce myself. I have to mention these things. It's just the way it is. Uh, anyway, joined by my co-hosts Derek and Matt and Katie. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't see her. She's not here today. I, I'm not sure exactly. She might. I thought I heard maybe she's she's like playing harp for. Um, was it Guns N' Roses or something? They're doing like a comeback tour. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what she's doing, but she's not here. Derek, Derek, what did what did you hear, Derek? I, I heard that Katie was in a walkabout to hell, Norway. Oh, hell. Hell, Norway. Is that yeah. a place? Because I've heard of hell, Michigan. Yeah, hell, Norway. Yeah, hell yeah. And, and hell freezes over. <laughs> I can what believe I that. I could believe that. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, I, I heard she was, I heard she was somewhere at the Jameson factory, but. Mm. Oh, there you go. Now that, I, can't, yeah. I can't confirm or deny that. And that would explain a lot. Mm. <laughs> Into the mystic. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Derek Day, the author of Deconstructing Religion and uh, a bunch of other shit that's out there for your uh, consumption. And I'm joined by my man, Matt. I, Derek, I like that. I'm an author of a bunch of shit. I podcast a bunch of shit. <laughs> I write a bunch of shit. That's who I am. And you blog a bunch of shit. And I blog a bunch of shit. Yeah, I'm Matt Destefano, and um, we—I'll uh, introduce myself by by saying that I just write a bunch of shit. And uh, but I want to give some space to—we uh, have another advertisement today, and uh, it's a sponsor of sorts. So let's cue that up. Hi, this is Keith, and I would like to invite you to join me for the Inner Circle. The Inner Circle is a weekly blog series covering the sayings of Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas, available by subscription only. To sign up for these weekly posts, go to keithgiles.com and click on any of the posts marked Inner Circle to subscribe for just $5 a month. Future posts will include links to exclusive private Zoom sessions where we can talk more in-depth about the Gospel of Thomas, answer your questions, and explore the wisdom we find in this ancient text together. Join the Inner Circle today at keithgiles.com, and I look forward to meeting you there. And... If you want to reach your favorite heretics, you can exercise finger dexterity and dial the digits 240-343-7379. Once again, it's 240-343-7379. And we have, is this a text request? A voice I believe so. Okay. And that request is, very simply, can we at some point have Julian of Norwich as the heretic of the week. Yeah. Well, look, I've checked with her people and she's dead. So uh, she's not, she's not available. She's not doing interviews at this time. uh, Unfortunately. If, 
if Katie were able, if Katie were here, she could tap into her little magical, yeah, mystical, we, whatever, yeah. and we could, we could, we, we could call on the uh, the spirit of Julian at some did point. Did we do that? We did that one yeah, time, we, right? We, Didn't we, we have yeah. her channel yeah. like Mary Magdalene or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and Servetus and, and Gerard. Gerard. Yeah, yeah. We, we've um, we've been pretty successful in the seance department. <laughs> so there you go. Well, well, maybe we'll consider having Julian of Norwich on. Um, we'll call her back from the dead down the road. You know, that would be fun. Cause I don't know, not, I'll be honest. I don't know not enough about her really. And I think, um, I think it would be good to be educational. Well, that's what we did back in the day. If you recall about 7 million episodes ago, before we had <laughs> live heretics of the week guests, uh, Brad Jerzak was our first, I believe in like yeah. episode yeah. five, six, seven, somewhere in there. The Some first four we had. Yeah, deceased heretics of the week, and we would just give like a little Triple H history lesson. But right, yeah, the, the, the live guests have been probably my a very smart addition. Yeah, considering that the dead guests didn't last more than four episodes, I don't think I don't think that was a very popular idea. Uh, I, I heard a rumor <laughs> that that if if we can get someone from our audience to to rub Keith's magic lamp. Maybe we could summon someone from the from the lamp. Well, you yeah, you might summon something, but uh, you <laughs> might not like it. What you get? <laughs> and it wouldn't it wouldn't translate to uh, audio podcast. I don't think. Probably not. Pro- probably not. I don't know. It, it, it depends. It depends on uh, depends on what you use. You know what 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 uh, you know what what type of polish is involved. Or use your. Or use your imagination. Yes. <laughs> well, if we ever run out of people to interview, we'll start doing historical heretics of the week again, and then we can maybe do uh, do one, a bit on on Julian of Norwich. I don't know much about her, Derek. Do you know much? I mean, I know I she described God as motherly love and emphasized yeah. that. Fourteenth century mystic. Mm-hmm. Uh, what more do you want to know? That's more than I know. More than I knew <laughs> a few seconds ago. <laughs> Well, someone we do know about is our next, our actual heretic of the week, this week's heretic of the week. And I'm guessing uh, most of our listeners, at least a good percentage of them, will also know who this heretic of the week is and probably a little bit about them. So let's get to our heretic of the week. It's the heretic of the week. And I'm Brian McLaren. And every week I get emails from people telling me I am a heretic. Wow. Well, it is an honor to be sitting here with you, at least virtually, Brian. Um, Thank you so much for being our Heretic of the Week. And of course, as always, we must ask the question, why in the world would anybody um, consider you a heretic? Oh, my goodness. It's sort of a weird thing, isn't it? Uh, Yeah. Because I grew up in a little sect that considered a whole lot of people heretics. And then I was part of this sort of broader evangelical world and they had their list of heretics. And uh, I'm sure they have many, many, many reasons for for doing that. But I think probably the biggest one is that I just have criticized the status quo. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think... Ultimately, I think so much of what gets called a heretic, well, is someone who dares to think differently. And if you assume that a group is perfect already, then anybody who tells them they're not perfect sounds like a a heretic. So yeah, exactly. I think that is like the root of the word, right? The heretic, right? It's like somebody who uh, challenges or thinks, yeah, thinks differently or thinks for themselves, kind of a thing. 
Yeah, I think choosing is the root of the word. Yes, they it. choose to yes. think differently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So say say more about that. I know Brian, you know, those listening to our show, I'm sure know of you. And so you've been rocking the boat, for lack of a better term, thinking differently for a long time. What has gotten you into in trouble the most? So uh, maybe if I back up a little bit, I was uh, a college English teacher. That was my first career. And then I be- helped start a little congregation and I became a pastor. And I had never really felt that I fit in. I, I grew up in a fundamentalist setting. I knew I didn't fit there. And I'm one of those people when I entered what people call uh, evangelicalism, I felt I'd found a lot more freedom <laughs> than I used to have. Um, but I, I, I always was interested in science. I always cared about issues of justice. And, and I always loved the arts. And none of those things seemed to fit too well in, in, in the community I was in. But when I became a pastor, I had so many other people coming to me with their questions. And I just thought all of the answers I was given aren't good enough for me. And I don't want to have to pass them on to you. And that created a kind of a faith crisis for me. And I my first kind of, I guess you'd say, my first landing place was to say, maybe my problems aren't with Christianity in its highest and best sense. Maybe my problems are with modern versions of Christianity. And so, but actually what the, the word that helped me was the word postmodern, because I realized that every form of Catholicism and Protestantism was kind of rewritten in the last 500 years of modernity. And, that, and I started to realize there was something happening that was challenging the assumptions of modernity. And so my name was associated a lot with post-modernity. So I wrote a couple of books about this. The first was called The Church on the Other Side, and the other side was on the other side of modernity. And then um, I, I wrote a book called A New Kind of Christian, and that got some people really upset with me. And I, I then decided I want to write a book that nobody will be upset with. It's just a very tame book. It was called A Generous Orthodoxy. And for some reason, Southern Baptists got a hold of that book. And they, they I guess they just didn't read my earlier or later books. But the, that one got me a lot, of, uh, a lot of attention. And the H word was used quite a bit for that book. And, and uh, someone asked me the other day if I expect there to be a lot of critique or, you know, fireworks with this new book. Uh, uh, do I stay Christian? And I said, I think all the people who like to do inquisitions and witch burnings and that sort of thing, they stopped reading me a long time ago. So I imagine I'll be ignored uh, by them. You're in the clear. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck with that. Well, yeah. Now, you, you wrote a book called A New Kind of Christianity, and, and that kind of harmonizes with a, uh, a tagline by the late great Bishop Shelby Spong. Yes. He referred to his uh, teaching as a new kind of, of Christianity. So what I guess what my question is, is when you, when you look at Christianity, is it something that we should aspire to reform? Or, and, and not reform like Calvin, by the way. But, yes, but yes, yes, yes. Re- or let's say reform yeah. into, its, in, into its highest, best iteration? Or is it something that we graduate from and we move on from, we move on to something else? That, I, I want to hear your take on that. Yeah, well, I think, it's, I think both of those options are true for a lot of people. I, I think there are a lot of people who are, in, like I grew up in this fundamentalist setting, wonderful, nice people. Uh, and my parents were sweet, great people. But they told us that what they were doing was Christianity and everybody else was wrong. And so 
I could see where a person, I would have said, I was saying this by the time I was 10 or 12 years old. I was saying, I'm, I'm done with this thing. As soon as I'm 18, I'm out of here. Um, because uh, I liked science and they would, wouldn't believe in evolution and um, all that sort of thing. So I, I think for a lot of people, they do outgrow it because they're only given one version of it. I think one of the things that's really being, in fact, this is one of the reasons some people would consider me a heretic. I don't think the first form of anything is its highest and best and purest form. I think, I think things always begin embryonically. They always begin at one place and they, and wherever they begin, that, that flows from something else, right? But they're always in the process of, of change. And, uh, one of one of my uh, kind of theological heroes, a guy named John Cobb, and he says that all religions are in the making, and they'll become better or worse, or more healthy or more dysfunctional, uh, depending on what we adherents do. And so, I think some people would say that it's not even a matter of reform, trying to get things back to the way they used to be, but it's a matter of a fresh start, or it's a matter of the the growth process continuing. So the whole thing about people go- wanting to go back to the first century church, that's just, you know, that, that's a wasted effort. Well, here's what I'd say. If people look at the status quo and they think it stinks, uh, you know, they see the kind of things we see in the world and they say, I kind of think what Jesus was about was better than this. I can understand why they'd say we want to go back. And so I, I don't want to criticize them, but the truth is you can't go back. And I think what it makes more sense is you can say, what's the next step we can take from where we are towards something better? Uh, and obviously, we'll all argue about that. We won't agree on it. But I think it's more honest than thinking we anybody actually goes back. Yeah, I, I found that. I love I loved that you said that, Brian. And I think I found that whole concept of, um, well, two things you've said. One thing you've already kind of alluded to is Christianity's world, yes. that there is not one. Yeah. That there, even from the beginning, actually, the more I study church history, and like you see from like from the very beginning, there were there was not one one idea of what this yes. Jesus guy was all about. And uh that's it's always been that way. And um yeah. but also like that idea too of um the progressions of things, like yeah, that it that um that the earliest version is not necessarily the best. That things should grow and mature, and you know, like like living things do, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, and you know, I, like I, for example, I even noticed um, like the way a lot of evangelical Christians approach Paul. We are getting close. I would say we're getting close to treating Paul the way Catholics tend to treat Mary, where we have we wouldn't say this really necessarily, but in a way we kind of do that. Paul is inerrant and infallible. Paul couldn't be wrong about anything. Oh, and, and we won't give Paul any latitude to be someone who, let's say, maybe wrote down some ideas in Galatians, one of his first epistles, that later on, let's say later in Romans, he might have said, you know, I've thought about that now, and now I'm going to modify that and change that. Right? We don't give him permission to do, change his mind about something like any other human being. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, that's, that's really well said. I, I think in the book I wrote called The New Kind of Cr- Christianity, I said that many of us have accepted Jesus as our Savior and Paul as our Lord and teacher. <laughs> um, yes. Oh my gosh. And, and, uh, and, and we very conveniently dis, dis, we, yeah, we, we just got rid of Jesus uh, to do anything but get born and die. Uh, and <laughs> right. then, uh, According to the creeds, that's all we need him for, pretty much. That's all we need him for. But 
And and I think Paul becomes so much more interesting if we let him be a human being who's going through all those kinds of identity crises and changes. I, I remember uh, when I was in college, I took a course in, in Reformation history. Um, this was at a secular university, but it was a, a course I took. And, um, I, and you read Martin Luther, and Martin Luther is all about freedom and all the rest until he's in power. And then he was as dictatorial, <laughs> dictatorial as anybody else. So right. <laughs> we have so many examples that, that yeah, pe- we're all, religions are in the making and we're all in the making too. Yes, absolutely. So Brian, uh, this is the pivotal question. The stake in the sand question. Where was it that you made this this turn from you said you grew up in in uh, in basically orthodoxy or you know very fundamentalist, but what was it that caused you to turn the corner to um, to to begin to explore beyond the boundaries of the Christianity you were given? Yeah, you know, Derek, I think something I figured out probably when I was still a teenager, but I certainly figured this out by my early 20s, that religions function like games and there are rules to the game. And what I figured out in the evangelical world is that the game involves using, making a point and using Bible verses to prove that your point is legitimate and maybe more legitimate than anybody else's point. And I got very good at that game. And it was very clear to me playing that game for five or 10 years that you can use the Bible to say any kind of outrageous thing. And in the years since, I've certainly seen people do that, you know. And so what I started to, I think my first fatal mistake was I started to think that that game was a, an immoral activity. And especially later, it became clear when I, for example, I, I, I was working on one of my books and I became curious uh, to actually read pro-slavery literature from the United States. And it's not easy to come by because, thank God, nobody publishes it anymore. But a couple of university presses have started publishing pro-slavery literature, including pro-slavery sermons. And when I went and read those, I just thought they're playing exactly the same game. And, and so, uh, I think that's what got me in trouble. I just didn't like, I, I didn't want to use, I, I, I like the Bible. I think the Bible is super, super interesting. And I take it very, very seriously and all the rest, but I just don't like to play that game. Yeah, that's actually an interesting exercise. I, I think I did something similar, um, was writing a book about like how we approach scripture. And I came across one of these quotes from, I, I, I don't want to say who it was. I think it was Van Dyke. I'm not sure. I think it was him. But anyway, it was it was this, you know, because the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, yes. all about slavery, right? Promoting slavery and saying that if any man would ever say that slavery is, you know, a sin or is wrong, he would be arguing with God himself yes, and the yes. scriptures themselves. And you know what I did? I took that quote in my book and I just traded out the word slavery for LGBTQ and yeah. homosexuality. Yeah. And, and it was like, it's chilling how like, yep, it's the same exact thing. And then the way that church now, hopefully, would back off of that kind of statement now. All, but they, all we've done is change the, you know, fill in the blanks. We've changed the terminology and we're still back to doing the same kind of thing and give it another couple of decades, hopefully, no more than that. Um, that hopefully the church will be, you know, apologizing again. Oops, sorry. You know, we, we blew it again. But, but we keep falling into that pattern, don't we? We just keep playing that game. And, and I think it's important, like you said, to recognize that it is a game. 
And we probably the only way to win is just to not play. <laughs> it's it's the scene from Saved when she hits she hits the other girl who got pregnant with a Bible. That's I mean it represents that scene represents the same hermeneutic. <laughs> I'm filled with the love of Christ. Yeah, she throws the Bible at her. You know, it's interesting. Um, enslavement, ancient enslavement was the, my area for my dissertation. And it's amazing Is how when so? I make that analogy for people, though, very often they'll say, oh, no, that one, it just doesn't apply anymore. It just doesn't apply anymore. But sexuality does. Yes. So we're, as humans, we're just so able to make all these different, lots of different categories apply or not apply. But, well, Brian, I have a, I have a question. Um, there's so many words that are used to describe you. And rather than, um, us apply these words to you. I would love to hear which ones resonate the most with you because I've seen you labeled conservative, progressive, evangelical, progressive evangelical, orthodox. Your own book is generous, generous orthodoxy and modern, postmodern. Which of these fill your heart, if any of them? Uh, labels all, uh, can't ever fully describe us, but I'm kind of curious where you sit in the middle of what other how other people describe you and, and how you feel like your own journey is emerging right now. Yes. Uh, well, I'll tell you the first, uh, Katie, the first thing that comes to mind is, I don't know, this is probably over 10, this is probably 15 years ago. Um, there were a couple of people who really wanted to discredit me. And so the worst possible word they could think of is they called me a revisionist. And I actually would see that as a great compliment if it means getting a new vision. So that would be one that, uh, you know, I, I would interpret it, in, I guess, in a different way. You know, the word progressive is, uh, uh, is a sort of slippery word. But if the idea is that we think we ought to move forward, we ought to make progress rather than going back, uh, if, if we, we, yeah, I, I'm very comfortable with, with that word. I probably, if I were writing today, I wrote Generous Orthodoxy. I think it came out in 2004. I, I probably wouldn't entitle a book with the word orthodoxy in it unless I was being playful or doing something like my friend and colleague Richard Rohr does. He talks about an alternative orthodoxy, which is his way of saying, uh, I think what Keith was saying a couple minutes ago, that there there are many Christianities and there have been many different definitions of orthodoxy. So I, I could use it in that sense. But what feels to me like has happened is that word has been a way for people to double down on doctrine. And uh, one of my other... Uh, uh, beliefs. I mean, it's funny to say it this way, but one of my beliefs is that Christianity is not defined by beliefs. <laughs> and so that would be another one. And then the word evangelical, I, I just can't use it anymore because it has, I think, really become more of a political and cultural word, word than anything spiritual. I have to say it is my heritage. That's where I grew up. Um, but yeah, I couldn't, I, I have friends who use it. Um, still, and I respect them doing that, but I just would feel I'd, it's not a word I would use. Oh, um, I was going to say, if you could maybe lean into like, what, what does it mean to be postmodern? And does that, is that the same as being post-Christian? That's a great question. Yeah, in fact, that really circles back to who, who's doing the defining, because for a lot of people, Christianity is defined by modernity. So, for example, fundamentalism was based on a, a, a document about the five fundamentals of the faith, which was articulated just over 100 years ago. Nobody in Christian history ever took those five as calling them the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, but for fundamentalists for the last 100 years, they are the essentials of the faith. And, and the Catholic Church 
uh, after the Reformation, they kind of went back and said to to stand up to the Reformation, we have to rearticulate what we're about. And I would say what happened in the Council of Trent, I think it was 16, 19, somewhere around there. So uh, also we're somewhere near that anniversary. I can't remember the exact year, but in, in the Council of Trent, uh, they, in a sense, modernized medieval Christianity. So all of Christianity, as we inherited it, is a modern phenomenon. Maybe you could say Eastern Orthodoxy isn't, um, although they're having their come come to Jesus moment uh, with the war in Ukraine, and it's fascinating to watch fissures developing in Orthodoxy over this uh, moral outrage that's going on there. But um, Christian got defined as a modern in within modern terms. Um, and, and in a way, when you think about it, if medieval Christianity was centered in a pope and cardinals, authority resided in a hierarchy, what reformed Christianity did is said, no, it doesn't reside in a hierarchy, it resides in a book. And it was very much like what happened in, in a set of documents. It's very much like what happened in American history when uh, the American Revolution happened. Authority doesn't lie in, in the king. Authority lies in a, a constitution, in, in a document. So I think all of that is very, very modernist. And a lot of us feel that that has started to break down. Really, after World War II, I think it really started to break down. And we're still in the middle of it. And in fact, Donald Trump's Let's Make America Great Again, I think that again wants to go back to uh, certitudes from a past era. And really, a huge part of the, I think, the global struggle between a kind of regressive authoritarianism and a progressive exploration of what we're going to be going forward, I think, is just playing this all, uh, playing this all out. But one other thing I should say, Katie, um, uh, one of the big, like this was almost like a lightning bolt for me, is when I realized that postmodern was postcolonial, because the other story that was going on from right around the time of the Reformation was the, uh, the, it really began in 1452 with the doctrine of discovery when uh, Pope Nicholas V sent the European kings of, uh, uh, the European Christian kings into all the world to make slaves of all nations. And that's literally what that document says. And so I think this is the other thing that's happening is that I think Christianity is trying to have a the sectors of Christianity are trying to be honest about the last 500 years and say, this has been a disaster. This is, Christianity is on the verge of destroying the world. And, um, and that's really what would be behind, you know, the part of what's behind my book, Do I Stay Christian? Because I actually think that's a discussion we need to have. Yeah, it's so, so great. Um, this has been a great conversation. I, I was just curious. I hate to put you on the spot. Just so you know, we don't normally ask people this. <laughs> um, but being who you are, someone who has thought a lot about this and written a lot about this and spoken a lot about this topic, and we're kind of on this subject, where do you see Christianity headed in the future? Like, you know, we're going through we're going through now this deconstruction movement, which seems to be, you know, gathering steam, and it seems like it's out of control, and it's not going to be something anyone's going to be able to stop. Um, but um, where do you see the future of Christianity? It feels like we haven't, Christianity doesn't know what it wants to be when it grows up yet, because it hasn't grown up yet. So what kind of, where do you think, where do you see us going? Yeah, it's a great way to phrase it. Uh, I, I think three things will happen. I think the, certain sectors of Christianity will double down on everything that's wor that's the worst about Christianity right now. I think what we see as terrible now, we haven't seen the worst of it yet. There's going to be increasing desperation. Uh, I think there's going to be increasing 
uh, people fleeing to authoritarian leaders. And uh, I, I just think the, the racism, the white supremacy, the patriarchy, the environmental crimes, uh, I think we'll just see that all of that intensify. Um, the violence, I think, I, I think, I mean, I, I, it's very hard for me to imagine any scenario in which nuclear bombs are launched in, in this century where it's a, not a Christian who's either pressing the first button or the second button. Um, so, uh, especially because almost all the nuclear bombs in the world are in a so-called Christian country, either Russia, who's, uh, you know, Russian Orthodox primate is supporting uh, their, their leader, or the kind of America we saw uh, over the last four years of the Trump administration, where religious leaders were willing to sign up behind him. So I think we'll see worse things happen. And I think we will see better things happen. Uh, I mean, really, this is something I write about in the book is that here we're at this moment where black voices that were totally marginalized, the, the most creative theology in the world is being done by black, indigenous, and other people of color, and by women, and by sexual minorities, um, and uh, from the LGBTQ community. And, and this incredibly creative, fascinating, insightful, fertile theology is being generated. And I think that's going to produce fruit over uh, the next, uh, it'll be a minority, I think, but it's going to be a significant thing. And then I think the third thing is that massive numbers of people are going to leave. And, uh, and the really interesting question is, where will they go and what will they become? Because un Fortunately or unfortunately, depending how you look at it, there there isn't there really isn't aren't great there people aren't leaving Christianity and saying I'll become Buddhist or I'll become you know Jewish or I'll become Hindu. Some are, but what most people are saying is I don't want to be Christian anymore. I do have a spirituality I want to maintain, and so I've got to figure out how to do this on my own. And what that will be, nobody knows. I I kind of hope that those latter two alternatives could be friends and build momentum together. Now, you've mentioned your book a couple of times. Is this stuff you get into your book? And please, um, for our listeners, this episode is coming out right around your launch. So tell them all about yeah. it. You you don't have to give away uh, the spoiler on the, the title, answer <laughs> what your answer is. I know you want people to read it, but maybe if you could tease that out a bit. No, no, I, I sure can. So the book is called Do I Stay Christian? And it has three parts. Um, part one is no. And I try to give the 10 best reasons why a person would leave Christianity. And they're all reasons I take seriously. And um, I could imagine leaving Christianity for any of these 10 reasons. Each one, any, any single one of them is a good enough reason to leave. And then the next 10 chapters, uh, are, part two is called Yes. And I ask the, myself the question, having opened our eyes to those first 10 chapters, is there any way to stay Christian in good, good conscience? And, and, uh, so that's what I do in the second, uh, 10 chapters. And then at the end of that section, I say, listen, some people are going to stay Christian. Some people aren't, and nobody's going to stop anybody from doing either. The, que the, the deeper question I think we face is whether or not you stay Christian, what kind of human being do you want to be? Because we, we live in a dangerous time. And that's what, uh, and, and in some ways I end up saying, look, whether you stay or go, let's talk about what kind of person you're going to be and, that, and, and what kind of culture we want to build. And that's, yeah, that's the shape of the book. So this seems to um, raise a question with 
where where you maybe you are in your journey we won't uh, we won't give any spoilers for the book everyone can read it <laughs> but can you, you maybe tell us a little bit about what your relationship is to Jesus or Christ now and and how you frame that for yourself yeah it's a great question so i'll tell you i i just want to be honest kind of from my own i mean just to be as honest as i can be i think jesus was brilliant um, when I try to understand and piece together uh, some kind of image of him from the documents that we have, canonical and, uh, and to whatever degree we uh, add credence to non-canonical ones, I just think he was an absolutely revolutionary, brilliant human being who uh, was in some ways a couple thousand years ahead of his time in that the issues he was dealing with, I think, are the issues that we're dealing with today. I think what Christianity has done with him over these 2,000 years is pretty much erase all that really makes him interesting. And so um, that's where I want to start. I want to say that I think he's interesting. I think he's brilliant. I think he's incredibly relevant. And and I don't I, I don't spend any time trying to deny any you know, orthodox beliefs or teachings about Jesus because I understand why those beliefs developed and I understand the purposes that they, f- they fulfilled. But to me, the questions I'm asking and the people around me are asking are just different questions. So I'm interested, for example, to say, if I live in an economic system that is making a tiny minority of people unimaginably wealthy by them not doing anything except holding on to their money, um, and, and investing it. And while the vast majority of people, as Howard Thurman said, their backs are against the wall. Um, if I say, does Jesus have anything, does his teaching and, and life have anything to say about that? Suddenly he does. And, and suddenly he really, really looks interesting. And if I say, oh my gosh, we're in an environmental crisis where I, I, I have two, gra- my grandchildren visiting this week. And I, I think, literally by by in their lifetime what could have collapsed because of the idiocy of the corporate elites and the political and their political team that they that they buy and i think does jesus have anything to say to this environmental crisis which really is a question about how we humans relate to money and how we relate to the earth suddenly it's uh, so interesting and if we want to talk about violence with not only uh, you know, war and uh, the proliferation of hand of personal armaments, um, guns and rifles, all the way up to bombs and drones and missiles and nuclear weapons, biological and chemical weapons. And I say, if I were to just try to study Jesus for what he says to those issues, absolutely brilliant and fascinating. And so that's what attracts me. And I've been at this for a really long time, and I just keep getting amazed. Like literally. I, I attend, uh, I don't attend a lot because I travel a lot, but I attend a little Episcopal church near where I live. A couple of weeks ago, the sermon was about the story of the prodigal son. And as I'm listening to that text that I've heard, who knows how many times that I've preached on it so many times, I just thought there are like six levels of this I see that I've never even seen before. Uh, I mean, for example, what hit me that day is if you wanted to design a story to shake a person out of dualistic thinking, you could not design a better story than that. And uh, so that's that's what really is alive uh, for me. So it sounds like, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I'm what I'm hearing, and tell me if this is um, resonates with you, is that you're you're interacting with the um, living words of 
of Jesus as they still surface in our in our contemporary modern postmodern world. Uh, I think, yeah, I think one way to say it is the more, and, and again, this is something that just wasn't done for centuries and centuries of Christian history for a whole lot of reasons. Some we didn't have the scholarship, and some we had a bunch of philosophical assumptions we borrowed from Greek philosophy and other places. But we didn't actually look at Jesus as a historical figure. We thought we were demoting him to pay attention to him as, as a movement leader, for example. I, I think one of the most interesting categories to look at Jesus in is the category of movement leadership. Um, and uh, social movement theory fascinates me. And Jesus just like dots every I and crosses every T in movement leadership. And so I, I look at him in his context, and then I think about us in our context. And that's the, I, I, I don't even think it's so much of taking his exact words and applying them to today as much as it is looking at what he was doing in his context and say, what would we do in our context that would look like that? WWJD reformatted. I love it. Uh, there you go. I think that's one of my fa- that's one of my favorite favorite answers to that question. Yeah, it was great. So I, I'm I'm guessing the book is on Amazon and will be able yeah. to be purchased there. Do you have a website that you want to uh, tell our listeners about that people can uh, catch up with you and, and follow your work? Yeah, the easiest thing is just my name, brianmclaren.net, B R I A N M C L A R E N.net. And um, there, there's links to Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And yeah, so anything people want to find out about me, they'll be able to find there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I have loved it as well. Great to hang out with you guys tonight. Thanks. Oh, wow. That was pretty cool. Honestly, I can't believe that we've made made it this many years and episodes, and that was the first time we ever had Brian McLaren on the show. So that was really, really cool. We're kind of going down the list, right? We've, we've gotten Richard Rohr, we've got Rob Bell, we got David Benliard, we got Nadia Boltzweber, uh, now we got Brian McLaren. I mean, we're kind of getting the... Uh, who's left? Who, who are we missing? There's there's plenty of people left, but we are getting all the who's who of who are the true like heavy hitting heretics, right? Yeah, like maybe next would be like Bono, Oprah. <laughs> uh, I don't up, know who's left. Ladder. Russell Brown, Russell. I don't know. And you know, I'm I'm just really disappointed that Brian McLaren couldn't hook me up with a McLaren sports card, but the conversation was dope nonetheless. Yeah, I think, yeah, if you were hoping that by having him on, that would somehow <laughs> have been a fringe benefit, then yes, you, I could see being disappointed in that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, so listen, I think it's time for us to jump into our topic for this episode. We are continuing our parable series. And, um, so the way we've done it, the way we've structured this, like there's four co-hosts. And so each, each uh, host or co-host picked a parable to cover in the second series. So um, this episode, we're actually going to do one that I picked. And I went back and forth on this. I, I actually changed it at least once. But I, I think this is a good one to start with So um, for, for this episode. So I decided to go with the parable of the generous landowner. Uh, they, the, <laughs> this parable comes from, we all know, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. It's a kind of a long one. Uh, should we read it or? I don't think we need to read it. Eh? Yeah, Keith, it's your it's your parable. So well, yeah. give the quick synopsis, the cliff note version of there 16 verses. Okay. So like most parables Jesus gives us, uh, it begins for the kingdom of heaven is like. And so then he gives us this parable. So basically there's the, uh, it says a master of a house. Early in the morning, he has got a vineyard and he hires some people to work and he 
he agrees to pay them a, one denarius a day. Which I'm assuming work, is you a bums. Lot. Yeah, it's a lot of money, like, apparently. But then as the day goes on, so like at lunch, he goes out and finds a few other people and he, he, pay, he offers to pay them a denarius for the day's work. And like near the end of the day, it's almost like the sun's almost going down and the work day is over. He hires a few other guys and he, uh, he arranges to pay them a denarius a day. And so even though some of them worked eight hours, some of them worked four hours, some of them worked like two hours, all of them get paid the same amount of money. And then, of course, as you would imagine, the people that have been working their ass off all day are kind of pissed. And they're like, hey, that's not cool. Well, how come we worked all day and we got paid the same as these people that worked for two hours? And then the, uh, the man says, look, I didn't do anything wrong to you. You agreed to work for a denarius. You know, take your money and go. I, did, I haven't wronged you, right? Because that's what we agreed on. I just decided to pay these other people the same amount. And that's my choice, right? So... Don't basically, he says, don't begrudge my generosity. And then, then of course, now, 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 according to the way it's written, that's the end of the quote. So apparently that is the end of the parable. But then there's a, the verse after that, uh, at taxon. So the last will be first and the first will be last. I guess that's still Jesus talking, right? I guess that kind of goes with the parable. So then, yeah, that sort of sums it up by saying the last will be first and the first will be last. And, um, yeah. So anyway, that's the parable. That's the parable. You know, so, it's too bad Katie's not here, but she has really enlightened me on there's the 75%, I think, of the parables have an economic sort of context. Right. And, and this, one, this one for sure does. Yeah. This one for sure does. So I'll contrast like, okay, the, the traditional interpretation I was given in the evangelical church is that rejoice for the Christians who are last to give their heart to Jesus, maybe on their deathbed, are as equal in the eyes of God, they get the amount of rewards as people who are born Christians, right? Um, that's what I was kind of given. And now I'm seeing this, the, the, the minute I read this is like, pay fucking people a living wage. I think that's <laughs> the point of it. I, I see that economic, I'm like, yo, like it's not, it's not about, it, it might be about other stuff, but the-, the oh, it's, my, it's, it's also very socialistic. Yeah, it's like it's it's all equal. So pay people a living wage, whether they work all day or whether they work for an hour. You know, I think about the work that I do with people who have developmental disabilities. Like they can't work eight hours, like able-bodied people can all the time, but they still deserve they still deserve a living wage so that they're not fucking poor. Yeah. So according, and I, I guess this is true. I just quickly looked this up. Apparently, a denarius was a common day's wage for somebody. So so in that context, yeah, it seems to be well, what he's saying is that um, everybody gets a day, gets paid a day's wages, r- regardless, right? And whether you're working basically, like you could, you could kind of like apply that now to today's like, if you work as a, if you're a window washer, if you're a janitor, if you work in fast food, if you're an Uber driver, whatever it is, like you, everybody deserves to be paid, right? A living wage. Yeah, I think, and I think that's, I like that. And of course, who's upset about that are the ones who, who feel like, oh, you know, I should be getting paid a little bit more than that guy over there. Uh, obviously, some, not everybody's always happy with that. But uh, yeah, I guess from the kingdom perspective is no, everybody deserves to be, to be compensated at least a day's wage. So you know, one of the things that I see in this is the forgiveness of student loan debt. Oh, there you preach it. 
You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's I, not the most, that's really relevant. I mean, right now. It is yeah. because you know here here's the thing people people are saying. Uh, I saw this ad uh, from a uh, congressman, and I believe it's from Oklahoma, but he said that why should a truck driver who never went to college pay for the college education of someone that did go to college? And and you know, okay, so why should you pay for taxes for police, fire? And mm-hmm. and uh, and roads that or or not roads but police and fire let's say that you never use right right you never use it but you paid for it. You, it, it it's a sunk cost so that's that's one part and I, I do see the economic part of it the other thing is that um you know that no matter when you show up it, it it's the thing is that you do show up you know basically. And, and this is the thing that really frustrates me about a lot of quote unquote Christian folk, modern Western Christians. I should uh, caveat that um, is that they they are so steeped in this capitalistic mentality and and this competitive mindset that says that somehow I deserve more than you because I did this that or the other. You know, and, 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 and basically, you know, Jesus turns all of this on its head in this parable. This, the parable of the prodigal, the prodigal son, same thing. You know, it, it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You were here. You were doing all of this, all of this good, but you know, somebody else showed up and they participated. And since they showed up and they participated, they deserve to be compensated. That's what I see. Maybe I can put like a an old, uh, an opposite view on it too, because I'm always trying to think, you know, like how can we see this in, in a lot of different lights? So it starts with the kingdom of heaven is like, but from what I understand, that phraseology is kind of like to what can we compare the kingdom of heaven to? Meaning, we have to look for some of the differences in in these stories and what the kingdom of heaven like. I don't think it's always like that. I think it's compared to this, but in in ways it might be a little bit different. So I, I would I would um, just thinking about like workers' rights in America. I think people who do go above and beyond, who aren't recognized for their time in a, in a company, let's say, and they get paid the same as someone who just got brought on. Like I think that can be abusive too. So I, I wouldn't want to be too quick to simply say like the master is a hundred percent correct in like a universal way in offering the same wages for everyone. Because I mean, I, I mean, personally, like I've been at a company that I, I make 50 cents more an hour than when I started. And I've been there for five years. So it's like, uh, you know, I'd be, uh, do I, do I have to get paid? You know, am I greedy? Am I capitalistic for wanting to get paid a little bit more for being there for a long time? No. But at the same time, like, I still think you should, you should pay your, your, your people what they've kind of earned as well. So I, I would kind of not go, I wouldn't want to universalize this too far. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I've worked, I worked jobs. Um, it's funny, is like I remember working for a church once. I was on staff, actually, technically at the time I was working for two Christian ministries. I was working for a nonprofit uh, half the time, like three days a week. And I was working for uh, this church for like three or four days a week. And, um, and the, the pastor of that church bragged to my best friend who was visiting from out of town. And I, so I found out from my friend later that this is what the conversation that they had together, um, that this pastor had said to my best friend, he said, Oh yeah, it's really great having Keith on staff here because, you know, he works, he works his butt off. You know, he, we get a full time work out of him, but I only have to pay him 
path. And my friend looked at him and said, and, and you're okay with that? <laughs> and I just thought, when he told me the story, I was like, well, dude, thank you for standing up for me. That was really beautiful. But yeah, it is. But it was like, but the That's pastor thought it was great that basically they, the, the church was, was getting all this product productivity out of me, but didn't have to pay me. And then the, and then the irony is, is that when we left that church, we ended up leaving, <laughs> big, big shock. <laughs> we ended up leaving. They had to hire like three other people to do what, what me and Wendy were doing because it was Wendy and I together uh, on staff, but they still ended up hiring like, like two or three people to do what we were doing for half, like half the pay. And so, you know, that wasn't, that's not really not cool. I mean, you could look at it from your perspective, like, well, that's good for me, but is it really fair to the, to the people that are kind of working their butt off for you and you're not compensating it like that? I would, I would say that would be the reverse parable. That is not like the kingdom of God. That's not what the way you're supposed to treat people. Well, I, I think there's one other thing too that a lesson here is that all work is valuable. I think, I think Correct. that that's yeah. probably the overarching lesson because it, you know you you can spin this multiple ways, right? You know that 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 basically everybody should be equal, but then you you can you can also say, okay, well, this wasn't actually fair because there are some people that worked at it longer that that may have contributed more so on and so forth and 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 there and there should be some component for merit i'm not a complete socialist you know so i think here here's part of it too i don't know what you guys think about this because i can't help but compare this parable on one level to the prodigal son parable in the sense that the older brother was kind of like hey i didn't run away i didn't blow all the money um i was faithful and you didn't throw me a party and you didn't make a big deal about me being here. And, you know, and, and in a way it feels like that, like, um, cause in the parable, okay. So the, the people that he had, that the, that the guy hires at the beginning, that's just, Hey, um, you do a day's work. I'll pay you a day's wage. We shake hands. That's a deal. But, but what happens to the people you know, later in the day is that the, the owner wants to be generous, right? He's like, hey, I see these people need work and I, and I want to give them work. But you know what? I'm going to decide to show d- generosity and pay them more than the, more than just an hourly wage. I'm going to say, you know what? I know you only worked four hours or two hours, but you know what? I know you're poor. I know you need the money. I know you're trying to support your family. So I'm going to go on and give you the whole day's wage. And it's not... So in other words, I don't know that it's meant to be this blanket policy uh, as much as it's saying like, you know, it's okay to show this incredible generosity once in a while to people who really need it. Um, but at the same time, recognize that people who work all day also deserve the day's wage as well. Um, so in a way, you know, we could, I know, I know if we try to make this super literal, part of it wells up in it, so that's not fair. But again, it's also, you know, the, the older brother in the prodigal son story could have said too, this isn't fair. And, and this is the thing though, grace isn't fair. <laughs> the whole point of grace is that it isn't fair. It's not, it's not, it's grace is you not getting what you deserve. It's getting kind of what you need or what you hope for, um, what you don't deserve, right? So, so I think maybe in a way too, it's, it kind of touches how sometimes we're just not comfortable with extravagant grace like that. Like it just feels like, well, it's great when it happens to me. I mean, that's awesome. I'm just not sure I'll feel when it happens to somebody else. And then I have to, not, but then that kind of, Makes me, it challenges me to think, why am I not okay with this when it's happening to somebody else? But I'm totally fine if somebody does that for me, right? You know, um, back, back in the 1930s, 
1920s, actually, uh, Henry Ford uh, announced that he was going to pay all of his assembly line workers a wage of $5 a day. And, and it was scandalous at the time because there were, you know, basically what, what Henry Ford was doing, he had a, a, a sizable number of, of black workers on the assembly line. So he was paying black workers the same as white workers, which that was scandalous at the time. And then, and then also it wasn't based on seniority or wasn't based on merit. It's like if you showed up to work, this is what your wage was. Now, on the one hand, there, there are people that spin that, that tale illustrating Henry Ford as being, uh, somewhat altruistic. But the other part of it is, and this is, you know, what we don't see in Jesus's parable is, is there an ulterior motive here, right? We don't see that because Henry Ford had an ulterior motive. He was trying to stave off unions by doing this because he figured if everybody was happy with what they got, then there would be no need for, uh, for unionizing. Which he saw as a as a detriment. So that you know, I, I guess we have to look at this as as sheet music, and we have to look at the rests as well as the notes. I like that. That's interesting. That in itself could be almost another parable too, right? You could tell that parable like there was this guy, and he did this wonderful thing, and everybody celebrated him and thought, "Wow, what a great guy!" But then they found out later that well, he only did that because yeah, he had a, this ulterior motive. And yeah, so that's that's a fascinating way to look at it. I think the same thing happens, um, like when you see, for example, um, like famously Walmart screws a lot of its employees. Right? They will they'll they'll throttle back your hours so that you never because if you work past a certain amount, you have to be considered like full time, and then they have to give you benefits and like insurance and stuff. So they'll schedule you to the maximum that they can but without having you go over so they don't have to pay you benefits and things like that. And, uh, but then at the same time, then Walmart will do these drives, these charity drives to raise money, like for their own employees. And they kind of want the consumer to drop money into a box to take care of the, the, the financial needs that are lacking because Walmart won't pay them, um, you know, and take care of them the way they should. And so, like, so, like, they're they're having to go stand in line and, you know, uh, food lines and and stuff like this to get food for their families, even though they have a full time job. But they wouldn't have to do that if somebody like Walmart or you know some of these other large companies, which are multi multi billion dollar companies, man, they absolutely can afford to really take care of their employees. But yeah, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff always bothers me. I hate, I hate kind of seeing that stuff. The, the other thing I noticed real quick is when you see, um, you ever go to check out at like the grocery store? Um, this even happened. I went to Pan Express and, and then they ask you when you're going to pay your money, would you like to donate a dollar to the children's fund or, you know, save the children or something like that? And then they can, you feel guilty if you don't. But here's the thing. If you do, if you give them the dollar, uh, when you check out, you feel good. But they get the tax write-off from your donation. So yeah, so actually, you're paying them the money for the for the services that you're paying for. Then you're giving them charity money that they're going to donate in their own name. Then it looks like, oh, look at us—we donated ten million dollars to this charity, and they get a tax write-off for that. But where did the money come from? From you. You didn't get the tax write-off; they did. I hate that stuff. Like that kind of stuff really annoys me. Yeah, so I'm I'm hoping that this parable there's not the ulterior motive that she, I mean, 
But what what if there? I mean, what if there is? What if a, a denarius is really just like an hour's wage? And he looks the the master looks all uh, generous at the end of the day, but really he should have been paying you a dollar or a denarius an hour anyway. I, I hope that's that the kingdom of God is not going to pull the wool out from under us. But uh, yeah, I I think that this that this master probably didn't read your book. Don't be a dick. Well, if, if there is an ulterior motive, he didn't. But thank you for the shameless plug. But um, I wanted to like maybe take it in a more allegorical way. And I, um, I'm glad you kind of uh, picked this parable, Keith. And and it to me, it's I, I like the um, like our last parable, the lost sheep. I see it as a lot more universalistic than most Christians would. So you know, going back to the traditional kind of or a traditional interpretation within Christianity, I would just expand that to everyone who becomes enlightened, who, who finds themselves, who, um, you know, leans into love with empathy and compassion as, as you know, like, we're all going to get there. We're all going to, we're all going to find our way, right? Whether we find it today or at the last moment of our life, or even after we die, you know, um, we're all going to, we're all going to find enlightening. And that's to be celebrated. And someone who that happens too early in life is no better than the person it has happens to last. It just happened at a different timing. Yeah, exactly. Sing along, children. Kumbaya, <laughs> my lord. Kumbaya. Oh, so hey, hey, real quick, I, I just looked something up. I'm trying to get at this because here's the problem. Here's my problem with trying to look up what how much a denarius really was. And here's the problem: is that Everything I'm finding so far is that, well, because the Bible says that denarius was a day's wage, and that where's it coming from? From this parable. So it's assuming a denarius was a day's wage, but it's not telling me how much, how would it, what would it really translate to money-wise like for us today? It's just sort of assuming, oh, a, a denarius equals a day's wage without telling me the amount. But, but then I noticed here someone made a comment. Uh, there's a, a really good point, and it says that, um, it says, you know, it's not a cut and dried answer because the work day for people working, let's say, working in fields like that, their work day was 12 hours long, not eight hours. And so maybe then if you were divided it up into, uh, into the hourly wages versus the day's wage, maybe it's really not that good. Yeah, I don't know. This answer here says that a denarius was a Roman silver coin that weighed 3.8 grams. And that would have a modern value of 74 cents. Okay, now that, if that's true, that really changes the story. This guy's paying people 75 cents a day for 12 and then, hours. And then we think he's generous when he gives 75 cents an hour. Yeah. At the, at the end. Yeah, this that's kind of lame. This, this is a fucked up story, Jesus. Yeah, now, now I'm rethinking this. <laughs> yeah, no, that, but see, that answer makes a lot more sense because it's giving me an actual amount. So if a denarius was 3.8 grams of silver, then that translates to 74 cents today. A day's wage for 12 hours work was 74 cents. I mean, who knows? Maybe back then, 74 cents went a long way. But uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, if, if you look at it in the context of Henry Ford's $5 a day, yeah. and, you, and you back it back a thousand years or so, right? You know, 1,500 years. 16, 1700 years. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe that was a fair wage at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the problem is again, like people keep, um, 
It depends on which direction you go with it, right? But if you go the other way, if you're like, well, you know, people in the U.S., minimum wage, you know, make this amount, then therefore denarius, well, no, you can't go that way. It doesn't work that way, right? Where it's, it's a different time and there's, there's different system of how much people get paid. Ah, but there's, there's, there's the rub, right? Because on the one hand, you say, well, you know, that doesn't apply to today, but the same people will say that, that say that doesn't apply to today will say that the rest of the Bible does apply to today. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. So which is it? Which one is it? You know? Well, I, I always wonder like whether, I mean, I know we don't have to take it that literally, but I, I kind of like picking things apart like that. Um, you know, just because something's a fair wage at the time doesn't mean it's a living wage. Right. So I mean, it's not, it's something that is like the average wage and the going rate doesn't mean it's, doesn't it mean it's fair? And we have to ask about the systems in place that, that tell us like a, a fair wage at the time is necessarily good. Because I mean, like even California has a $15 minimum wage. Right. That is not a living wage in California though. No, it's not. So, I mean, we're basically saying, oh, well, put the minimum wage at 15. Well, okay, that's that's all. In theory, that's that's fine, I guess. But if you think about it, that's not even... Cl- a living wage, I looked it up, is 24, 23 to $24 an hour in California. Right. That's like the, the minimum living wage. Right. Which means if you make 15 an hour, you're grinding on a couple other jobs. You got some side hustles, you got, you know, something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And see, this is the way it's always been. I remember when we lived in Orange County, uh, yeah, it's very expensive to live there. I mean, I was, even when I was making, you know, more than $50,000 a year, that's, that's like barely, barely hanging on, you know? Um, and, and anywhere else, any other state in the union, $50,000 a year is like, wow, man, you're making pretty good money. You're making, you know, $70,000 a year. Well, you're making good money. But in California, you're like, you're still eating uh, ramen and uh, going to Taco Bell, right? <laughs> now, so from some perspective, you know, there's this other story about the woman that comes in and breaks the, uh, the nard, right? The perfume over Jesus' feet and anoints his feet. And then Judas is all upset. And he says, you know, this could have been sold um, because it was worth 300 denarii. And then it says that's nearly a year's wages. However, if it's if three, if you, if you think about it, so if a denarii is seventy four cents, then three hundred denarii is really only like two hundred bucks, like two hundred fifty bucks. Yeah, but if you, if you think about it, it's a day's wage, and if, if you right. if you run out the year minus the Sabbath, there you go. It's about right. Right. <laughs> right. See again, we 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 play with those numbers in our head, right? We're like, wow, a year's wages like that was worth like seventy grand. No, it was worth like two hundred bucks. Which is to you and me, that's not very much at all. I guess in the context for them back then, that was a lot of money. But for us today, they'd be uh, like adjusted for inflation, that that, that probably is. Yeah. <laughs> right. But maybe 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 in that story, even Judas has a point though. Like <laughs> Right. You know what I mean? Like if they're all poor, right? Jesus ain't rich. And they're all like, you know, I kind of, I kind of try to always sympathize and empathize with people who are like the, the so-called like criminals of of the 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 twelve, right? I mean, like Thomas is doubting Thomas is like, well, I would doubt too, shit. And you know, it's like maybe Judas has a point. If they're all walking in sandals with holes in them, you're like, why did you just? Like, we could have sold that for a, a a bunch of great footwear as we're walking around. You know, <laughs> I mean, we're we're struggling here. We're hungry. Come on, Jesus, we could have got a damn donkey. Come on, <laughs> yeah, come on, Jesus. Come on. A couple of camels, man. Come on, something. At least. Big time. 
yeah. So it, it's fun though. This parable series is great because it does, it challenges us to look at these very common parables from different angles we haven't considered before. All of our assumptions are, oh, the, yeah, it's like this, like you were saying, you know, we, we were taught this whole thing about, like, like you were describing the whole thing about how you were told that it was about how, oh, Christians who get saved later in life. Um, like, honestly, I've never heard that in my life. I, I, heard I never that. heard that. One. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah, how, did they, how did they tell you to interpret it? Honestly, I don't know that anybody ever really sat down and said, here's how to interpret it as much. I mean, probably it was more from the side of grace that everybody receives forgiveness. Everybody receives grace, you know, regardless of their life or whatever. But, but not in the sense of, uh, maybe that's similar to what you're saying, but I, I never heard it exactly the way, the way you described it. I want to throw something out here that Matt said. He said the kingdom of heaven is like, like. He didn't say the kingdom of heaven is, or the kingdom of heaven will be, or sh- or was, or it, it like. Or to to what we to what shall we compare it to? That's another way of putting it. it exactly. It, he's 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 illustrating a comparative, but not exactly. Right. Yeah. I, that, yeah. Because if it was if it was exactly, he would just say. The, com- the kingdom of heaven is that exactly, and, and that's why I said I, I wanted to. I wanted to really cite what you were saying about light. That emphasize that light. That's really important. Yeah, and then I get that. But then this is part of the challenge: is that, but in what way is it like the kingdom? Right? Because if you don't understand the, the meaning of the parable, then then you don't understand in what way it's like the kingdom. Because um, and maybe part of the challenge is that you think you already understand what the kingdom is like, and you're reading that into the parable. But maybe you're maybe it's more that you need to understand the parable a certain way, and then that would change your idea about the kingdom. Or it's one step further in saying that we can't ever know what the meaning of the parable is because there's no such thing as just one meaning of the parable. So we'll always be wrestling what the kingdom of heaven is like. We can never have one one meaning of it because look at look at us. 2,000 years later, we've got like 15 different understandings of this one parable and we're missing Katie who would probably give us five more understandings. And well, you, you know, like you have some of these parables that, that Jesus comes back at, after everybody leaves and says, okay, you guys are part of the inner circle. So let me cue you in. On, on, on what this really means. Let me, let me explain it to you so that you, you know, you can go out and you can share this yourselves and, and understand what it means. In this particular case, and I went back and I looked through the text, and there is no further explanation. Jesus never unpacks this. No, and then the only, the only thing we get is that the only clue, I think, maybe is other than other cultural things going on that we may not understand, but that the very thing at the end, right? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. But that in itself is sort of like, well, I mean, what does that mean? Because you could you could just take that sentence and play with that for a little bit. What the the last will be first, meaning meaning what the last what, um, and they'd be first in what way? are they first? And so the, even that is sort of a little bit of a puzzle to try to figure out what he's talking about. Yeah, the the last in like a very literal way, or the last in a more like people who put themselves. Behind others, you know, to, you know, so it's, it's got a, there's a lot to unpack there and, and a lot of, that's just the nature with any of these parables though. Like we bring so many presuppositions in there. Like Derek, you just brought up the point, like, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to his inner circle. That's going to have a different assumption when he, you know, if he's, if he's telling a story to his inner circle, he has assumptions about them. They have assumptions about him that are going to be different if he's talking to, 
the scribes and the Pharisees or, the, or the, you know, any other different group. So there's always going to be, there's going to be that when we approach the text too and our assumptions into all those things. Absolutely. There's a, lo- a long-winded way of saying, I don't know what this always means. <laughs> well, uh, and, and see, I kind of like the idea of approaching the parable, uh, this and all parables that we look at. I'd like to begin, if I could, with the perspective that I don't know what it means. Because, I, you know, I think I, for so long, I've just made the assumption that I did know what it meant. Um, but as I'm learning, as we learned in the previous series that we did, after we looked at some of these things from different angles, I was like, oh man, I'm totally misunderstood that, you know? So yeah, um, I don't know. I, I even just love the, the ambiguity of that whole thing of the last will be first and the first will be last. Cause, because the, like you were saying, Matt, the applications for that could be like, like you're saying, the, the, so the person who puts themselves last, right? Who puts others first. That in the kingdom, they'll be exalted. They'll be, and again, that's, that's similar to things Jesus says in other places too, right? That if you, uh, that, that the humble will be exalted and the proud will be made low. That's a pretty common idea. That's even in the Old Testament. But it's not the only one. It's right. That's right. Now, I like what you said, Keith, about not knowing. And I, I think that that embracing the mystery is, is the, is the beauty of all of this is that, um, you know, you don't know. And, 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 and what happens is I think the problem occurs when we think we know, because once we know, now we can lord that over those who we don't think that they know. Right. And once you think you know, you also stop thinking. <laughs> you stop, you stop, you know, chewing on it and, and turning it and looking at it. And what about this? And what about that? And maybe, because if you assume that maybe you're wrong, or at least the possibility that you're missing something, you know, that's the only opportunity that you have to learn something and to see something that you're not seeing. But as long as you know, it's like you can't convince somebody of something or teach somebody something if they think they already know, if they've already got it figured out, right? So yeah, I think being able to, to approach these parables fresh and to say, okay, I'm going to assume I don't know what this means. And listen, I mean, it, you know, <laughs> again, the, the the overall Christian assumption is right. The way, at least the way I was raised, is this idea that the Bible is full of answers, and that Christianity has uh, you know this, these doctrines, and we have all God figured out, and we have we have answers. Right. The bottom line is we know the answers. We have it figured out, and that's the opposite of mystery, right? But it's sort of like well, but but even the scriptures themselves, like the parables, if Jesus wants to communicate like hard and fast doctrines where you've got to get it right or, you know, your soul, your eternal soul is in jeopardy. You don't, you don't do it. You don't accomplish that by telling a bunch of stories and that you don't explain that could, that could have multiple meanings. And then the fact that there are four gospels that no, not, they don't even agree with each other. So again, so if you're going to tell me, Oh no, the scriptures are about having the right answers and having it all worked out. Then how come even the four gospels don't know? When after Jesus rose from the well, first of all, when Jesus rose from the dead, um, who was the first person to see him? Was it Mary? Was it Mary and, and, and Mary's mother and Salome? Was it Peter and John? Was it? I mean, because each gospel will tell you a different answer. And after the resurrection, did Jesus told them to go to to wait for him in Jerusalem or to wait for him, you know, in, in this other place, Galilee? Well, it depends on which which one you read, and, and then all the all the way through. So like. Even the Gospels tell four different versions of the story. So don't, don't act like there's only one 
answer that there's only one version. The moral of the story is, don't worry about the fucking destination. <laughs> right. Embrace the journey. I love it. That's exactly right. I think that makes more sense. Yes. Enjoy the journey. Yes. And we hope, we hope everyone has enjoyed the journey so far in these parable series. The parable series is... This is... And, and hopefully, Katie, wherever she is journeying right now to Norway to uh, the Jameson Distillery, who knows? We hope Opening she journeys, for Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Uh, whatever she's, she's doing, doing, we hope yeah. she makes it back for next, next, uh, next in this series. It'll certainly be, uh, it'll certainly be a good one. But uh, yeah. until then, let's land this sucker. Uh, <laughs> I want to remind everyone that we do have a website. It is heretichappyhour.com. We have a bookstore there. We have all of our episodes. We have t-shirts and merch. Again, that's heretichappyhour.com. And just for those who may not remember, the books that we're selling there are generally 15% off retail and they feature a bunch of our heretics of the week. So go check that out. Yeah, cha-ching. And if you are, if you love the podcast, and of course you do, you're still listening. And if you support us on Patreon, uh, that's the best way to, to really support the podcast. Thank you so much if you do support us on Patreon. Uh, and I'm sure you love all the bonus stuff we throw at you all the time, uh, bonus interviews, uh, bonus podcast episode, you know, snippets and things like that. And um, if you don't yet support us, well, head over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour, support your favorite podcast. We'll also be given exclusive access to the private Facebook group for Heritage Happy Hour. Um, and by the way, we have another one uh, that's for everybody. That's the Heresy After Hours Facebook group. That's open to anybody. And hopefully you're already in there. If you're not, go ahead and join that group. Check it out. We post a lot of fun things in there. You'll meet a lot of great people. We post in there all the time as well. Um, we'd love to see you in that group. And again, if you do support us on Patreon, thank you very, very much. Mwah. 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 And listen, if you enjoy the Heritage Happy Hour podcast, show your love by giving us five stars on iTunes. Five stars, not four, not three, not two, but five. Because five is the number of grace. And if you give us five stars on iTunes, maybe you too will be able to walk with Katie in hell. <laughs> Okay. Wow. Walk hell, or walk through hell with Katie. I tried. There you go. I would want to walk through hell, not to hell. Yes. But hey, you know, if it's in Norway. Listen, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> Don't stop. Don't stop. Keep going. Don't stop. Get it, get it. Don't stop. Get it, get it.